With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Okay, guys, we are live. Welcome to the team house. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host Dave Park, and we have a special guest here tonight, uh, this is Shane Wade Willard. Shane previously served in the South African Police Special Task Force. It's uh, one of the lesser known units. We don't talk about it so much over here in the States, unfortunately. And I, I hope that we can change that because this afternoon I finished reading Shane's book. As you can see here, it is the South African Police Special Task Force an Operator's Perspective, one of the world's most elite special force units. And, you know, I think there's a lot of units out there, including police units, that on paper, they claim that they can do it all, that they can do any, any sort of mission set. But I think the South African uh, Special Task Force is one of those units that you guys can make a legitimate claim that you kind of did do it all. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty amazing the variety of operations that the Special Task Force participated in. And Shane's book talks about the history of the unit, how the, how the operators are selected and trained, uh, talks about the equipment, the weapons, the vehicles that they use. Uh, and then uh, there's a good 100 pages in the book that are especially interesting, where Shane has selected some of the more interesting operations that the unit participated in to highlight um, and to talk about the operational history of this unit. So it was... Uh, illuminating to read to say the least and Shane I know that in your neck of the woods it is quite early in the morning it's it's something like 2 a.m so we especially appreciate you making the added effort to be here with us tonight it's uh, just my pleasure to have me on the show and I will do my best to represent all the good operators the special task force has um, produced in since their inception in 1976. Well, maybe we could start there, Shane, and you could tell us a little bit about the origins of the Special Task Force and how they came about. I thought it was especially uh, funny, in, in a sense, to hear about how it sort of started off informally with a group called the, the Die Blixums. And if I'm not mistaken, in, in, in translated <laughs> into English, that means something like the shit stirrers, right? <laughs> <laughs> the cocker mocker. Okay, listen. <laughs> Before I get into that, I just want to read my dedication of my sure. book. Sure. 
It's very short and it goes like this. To all my brothers, we've worked together in many countries. We've completed together many missions. We've celebrated together many victories. We speak many different languages. We are from many different forces. Stay the course, brother. Right. South African Police Special Task Force, they started somewhere in the 70s. They wanted to, um, if you look into my book, the foreword, there's three forewords, uh, two generals and one colonel, where they write a little bit about the unit, how we started, how the unit started. Um, it started out of the security branch. They saw that there was a need for a counter-insurgency unit inside the SAP police force. Mm -hmm. And there was a small nucleus, a small unit um, of a couple of people, which the main person was that time a captain in rank called JJ the Swart, his nickname Blackjack. And they were nicknamed the Bloodsums, which is uh, directly translated as a lightning bolt. Um, but if <laughs> translated more directly, it's the shit stirrers. And the reason being, they trained after hours. Uh, they participated in on the range in shooting exercises. They participated in karate. They participated in um, uh, skydive exercises. Um, and uh, they obtained injuries off duty. And then they came obviously to work and they couldn't work. And so the generals at force at that time nicknamed them the Bloodsums. <laughs> but it was a it was an informal unit in the sense that it was just these guys after hours recognizing that South Africa needed a police hostage rescue counterinsurgency type unit, and they just did it all on their own initially. Yes. It Initially, but um, basically, um, they, they trained for a couple of years, something like four years. And what happened firstly in the history with the Munich massacre in the 19... Let me just refresh my memory. The, the, the Munich, Munich massacre and the, the GSG-9 takedown of the aircraft in, in Mangadishu. Yeah, 5 September 72. And then when Israeli came to South Africa with the SA game, then they asked in 1973, they asked for the protection of the um, Olympic team. And then Captain JJ de Swart, Blackjack de Swart, was chosen with his nucleus of the Bloodsums to protect the group. And they did it with uh, perfection. So they were vetted by the Israeli government and they did it, uh, they did it excellent. Then what happened later on in 29 April 1975, uh, operation that was called the Fox Street Siege. Um, the Israeli embassy in Johannesburg was overrun by a guy by the name of David Prater with his brother. And he had loads of weapons and ammunition. And he just wanted to prove to the Israeli embassy that their security was not up to standard. He killed one of their majors and he shot blindly at the people in the streets. And uh, then after that, um, 
the negotiations were successful later on and he gave himself up and he got something like 50 something years uh, um, in jail and then they realized we need a counterinsurgency special forces unit inside the police was, was that then, an operation shane did, did one recce respond to that uh that siege they did reconnaissance unit uh did respond to that siege but um it was then negotiated the, mm -hmm. the police negotiated some general i can't remember his name um he uh, basically negotiated with david Prota and david Prota gave himself up and, and so at that point they realized we needed a police capability to to deal with these situations absolutely then it was placed into motion and uh, officially started the first of february 1976 but they already took selection from there on so they already started in 1975 unofficially and uh, there was basically five five iron guys you know i would call them iron guys but i take my hat off to them um also a guy of statute that we need to place his name on the record is for sure colonel hagar deploy he became later on he went to the um, reconnaissance regiment he was also one of the founder members of the task force he went to the reconnaissance regiment so he did the special task force selection as well as he did the reconnaissance regiment selection and when he retired he retired as the chief of staff of the recce so he was second in charge of the reconnaissance unit um, that year when he left two other guys left with him that also uh, uh, passed the reconnaissance regiment selection course and the year after that another person left the task force and he also passed the reconnaissance regiment selection and uh, that were four people then in later years another person left but we can get to his name later on if we uh, dig into the book a little bit more so i'll more or less go along with the book uh, so the that was part. that that was the core of the the formation of the unit and um and then how did it start to come together? I mean, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the, the selection and the training process, which I thought was fairly unique. And, and let's say, I, I don't want to say parts of it were pretty brutal uh, from what I read about in your book. <laughs> um, Jack, I basically say it as it is. Uh, what you have to note, the selection courses has transgressed. It changed a lot through the years to adapt to the circumstances um, uh, and obviously to supply to the need what we needed to fight terrorism, um, hostage rescue and the rest of the stuff that we did. So um, all, that all that being said, at the beginning, the main core of guys, they were the instructors as well as they were students. So they had to instruct and they had to uh, partake in all the um, exercises. Then we had, for instance, we had um, um, civilian uh, self-defense instructors like um, Gary Greeson, if I remember his name correctly, Greeson. He passed away since, God rest his soul. 
um, as a good karate instructor, I think eight done or something. He, 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 um, when when he was finished with his career, and uh, Magnuson, there was another guy. He was actually on my book launch on the 31st of uh, January this year. I was very honored to meet him. He was our skydive instructor. Um, as well as that day with, with the book launch, I met many legends. Some of the guys that took part in the selection to um, uh, um, obviously make the unit in what it was. The earliest documentation you're going to ask, where did the task force come from? The earliest documentation we got was 1972, GS29 formation documentation. And I mean, I still have a copy of that. It is very um, uh, historical, actually, I want to say. Uh, the formation structure of the, of the unit um, is very basic. You know, if you look at the, at the units today and you look back then. But that was one of the units that uh, was used for the Special Task Force. The Special Task Force also went in the early years they went to Israel and they trained with the Israelis to get the different hostage release and, and other techniques. I am not that fully uh, up to date with what um, information they received from the Israelis, but I know they did, they did go for cross-training. So they got some help from the German and the Israeli counterterrorism units in, in forming up the special task yes. force. Um, and then I, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your personal experience, um, which correct me if I'm wrong, I think you got to the unit in 1993 and uh, going, your experience going through selection and the various phases of selection, because it's nothing like, you know, a, a, a traditional SWAT team. It really is more like a special forces selection that, that you guys had went through. Yeah, my personal experience, um, I mean, I was a dog handler. I came from a correctional service. I was a dog handler. I, I love animals. I love dogs as well. And then it was not for me. It was too boring. I took an inter-department transfer truck to the police force. It was force then. It's now service. And uh, then a year later, I heard about the selection course and I immediately enrolled. And uh, I was flown up to Pretoria. My story of, on my selection doesn't go exactly like my book. You know, that is a perfect story. My uh, prep form was one day, where they say two or three weeks, you know. So I flew up to Pretoria, and I did my fitness test. I had one day to rest, and then we started with the fast bait. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, the only one, not the only one, there was another one from my police unit that went up. His name was Herman, I can still remember. He was as fit as you can, you know, as a window. He was very fit, this guy. So, you know, everybody thought he was going to make it. But uh, obviously, as you know, selection process is a lot about not only physical strength, it is about your mind power, your will. What do you want to accomplish? So I never saw Herman after that. And... Uh, the yeah, when the first fight started, it was something I didn't fully expect. I just kept going. You know, it was either either death or I'll make it, something like that. 
<laughs> the psychologist uh, that uh, evaluated me after the second day or so the th on the third day asked me but why i want to complete it he kept on asking i can remember the same question it actually started irritating me but i just said yeah this is what i want to want to do and uh, i mean after we've uh, yeah, experience fast bait. One thing that I can also say about fast bait itself, yeah, at the third night, you know, you start to hallucinate, you see stuff that's not there. Right. It's absolutely so. You you just keep on going. It's pure, I write in it in my book about it's pure grit. So the guy that's got grit, it's also been researched in American uh, universities. The guy that got grit can keep on going. If you don't have grit, you fall off. So the guys that want to be on in the task force, they will keep on going. So either if they get an injury, they'll fall off. And some guys tried the second time and they made it. And some guys decided it's not for them. They're going to go for something else, you know, which is there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. So then, you, you, you know, after this grueling fast paid of approximately 86 hours, which I say is about three nights and four days, more or less, um, then they give you some food and they tell you you can go sleep and you think it's a joke. But as soon as you see, as soon as you see all the other guys have fallen asleep, you know, then you also go to rest. And so that is the initial, uh, you know, uh, to, to weed out the people who don't really want to be there. Um, and while you're in that VISPIT, uh, VOSPIT uh, phase of training, uh, what, what do they use to stress you out? I mean, do they, is it like the, the normal kind of things we associate with selection that you're carrying around logs, that you're doing long ruck marches, things like that? Um, actually, before you get to fastbite, uh, they'll they'll come to the normal. The norm is they come to your province. I'm from Cape Province. They do fitness tests there, psychological tests there. They weed out about 50%, sometimes more. After that, you go up to where I went to the north of Pretoria. Mine was different. They sent me straight. I heard it about it on short notice, and they you know that they needed guys. I I, I believe. So they sent me up. So. When you get to obviously fast bite, continuously you have continuous exercises. You have route marches. Um, uh, they'll tell you carry your gear. Then I'll tell you load your gear onto the truck. Then I'll give you a rucksack with an R1 rifle, or they give you ten R1 rifles to carry. Then I tell you load that back on the truck. Then I'll give you a chocolate box to carry. You know, it's a piece of. Uh, it, um, it is an ammunition box, you know, it's mm -hmm. quite big and it's filled with cement. You know, it's uncomfortable. Then you have to carry <laughs> one, then sometimes they give you two. Put that back and you just have to walk, you know, and then they, they see the guy's fitness level. Then I'll tell you, okay, take the Bierke. What's a Bierke? It's a piece of railway track, you know, about a meter long. Then it's got a chain, of another meter long, a chain or a piece of steel wire with a ball this, this big, there's no comfortable way to carry it. There's none. When you pick it up and you put it on your back, 
it hurts like hell, you keep it. You don't move it. You walk until they tell you drop it. <laughs> so it's just so, some masochist in the uh, South African police designed this thing. It was it's a railroad tie with a chain connected to like a cannonball, essentially, if I understand like, right. Yes, like a cannonball. It's actually a steel wire. It makes it more uncomfortable. The <laughs> chain chain would have been more comfortable, you know. Steel, <laughs> or, steel wire. So you know you can't control this cannonball. It's in the way. <laughs> Are any of the events um, team oriented or partner oriented? Are they all just individual events? Um, yes, that's a good question. There are some of the events that team oriented. During the day, then we'll go to the, um, they call it the time, the garden, the thinking garden, the think garden, where you go and they've got certain exercises. Then you'll put, for instance, be a chimney and you have to take up a piece uh, of the chimney, you have to take up a piece of tire. Mm -hmm. And then you have to do it in a team formation. Especially as the selection courses advanced, they had more of this, of this um, thinking tracks, if you want to call it as such. Then, before you, um, before you go, usually before the sun sets, They'll give you, they'll give the team two poles to carry, they, they, 300 kgs each, or probably just a little bit over 300 kgs each. And the names of those are, let me gaat and gaan skate. Okay, I put it in, is lick my ass in English, and the other one is go shit. That is a direct <laughs> translation, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and then in the team formation, obviously to the left you have to lift it, and then you have to walk up what we call skull belt, shield hill, shield hill, if you directly translate it. Then you have to walk up to shield hill. When you get up there, you drop it, and you can rest, or if the instructor decides, you just walk down with it again. And if you don't work in team format, then instructor decides to send you back up again. So it's a three nights, four days, just absolute smoke session. And then after that, I, I, there are all these other phases of training that, um, you know, the actual training portion of it. Um, and I, I, maybe you want to go, if you could go in order, maybe that's the best way to explain it, the various phases of training. Okay. Obviously, it's first phosphate because they want to root out, um, mm -hmm. root out all the guys that's not tough enough, mentally tough enough, more and physical tough enough. After phosphate, you get about two days to rest. Um, once you once you finish with phosphate, then uh, they will start with weapons handling phase. That's between, if I remember, between four and six weeks. Once you finish with weapons handling phase, they'll teach you how to shoot, especially with a pistol, how to be a crack shot with a pistol, because um, the unit does hostage rescue. You want to be able to place your round on a target at a specific spot 
to incapacitate the hostage taker. Now I won't say where the round should be should be shot because it's a specific spot on a person's um, on this person's body that will render him incapacitated. In other words, if he holds a hand grenade, he won't be able to open his hand. If he fingers on a trigger, he won't be able to squeeze it if it's against um, uh, if it's against our STJ. Um, so they train you with all the different weapons, uh, a handgun, Uzi, MP5. I don't think they use Uzis anymore. Um, R1 rifle, R5 rifle, and uh, hand grenades and all, all the rest of it. That's about four weeks. After the four weeks, we go to uh, usually to rural phase. Either rural or urban phase. Mm -hmm. If you go to a rural phase, then um, that's about six weeks. You get taught how to survive in the bush. You get taught tracking, anti-tracking. Uh, you you get taught um, how to uh, evade, and then one of uh, the most difficult you you get taught how to plot. I think let's first go to the urban phase. Urban phase, you get taught how to do hostage rescue on the farm at waterfall where we do our training. There is a double, triple story later on they build it. We usually went to the bluff in Durban where the reconnaissance unit were because they had a lots of buildings. And we could do abseiling there. We could do, uh, um, we could use grenades. We could use live rounds. And we could put our targets on to train to be able to do our movements correct on stairs, upstairs, downstairs, into different uh, um, rooms. Um, two guys in different groups. We did uh, climbing techniques, uh, ladder techniques, um, and and uh, you, you know lots of different techniques. That's about six weeks that you do hostage rescue. Um, the, the urban phase. Then the rural phase is usually lost, all the pending. Then you get airplanes, buses, and trains phase because you not only need to be able to rescue the hostages out of a building, the most difficult is can be trains, can be buses, and I, I believe probably airplanes as well. So you get taught, you will be taken to a specific area where there's a bus, you'll practice on the bus. You, you'll get taken to an area where there's trains, you'll practice on trains. You'll get taken to the real deal where the planes are, and then you will train on the different planes. You will see in the, the, the various special forces in the world, they have um, different methods 
to deal with uh, um, plain hostage release. Um, I mean, you see, if you go on Wikipedia, you'll see, you know, they've got a truck with this ladder structure and so on. The task force got their own way to deal with it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Of minutely, minutely, I collaborated on it minutely, but uh, I would not go into it any further because I, I, I will not dis disclose. Um, any information that can jeopardize a uh, any situation. Mm -hmm. um, then after the trains, planes, and buses phase, I don't want to miss a phase. Yeah, I mean it's been a while since I've been there. <laughs> then when we get to the dark phase, you know, then I think everybody's gonna love that. <laughs> okay, you you get. You get trained into foreign weapons, a lot of foreign weapons they train you in. So you get to fire AK, you get to fire different other weapons, RPD. Um, um, and you get trained into recognize, to recognize them. And you always get trained. It's important that you get trained in the foreign weapons because if you're in a foreign country and you run out of ammunition or weapons, you can use that weapon. And that's an interesting point there, Shane, just a small uh, sidebar, is that your unit did external operations outside of South Africa. Yes, we did. Um, we did a hostage rescue in Botswana and Popsaski, um, one in a bus. You also mentioned in the book about the unit doing a destroying weapons caches in uh, Mozambique and in the late 90s. Yes, we did. But let me finish with the selection. Yeah, please. Um, okay, then when you finish with all this uh, urban training, you go to your rural training. And you go to, obviously, they teach you, um, teach you all the arts in bush warfare. Mm -hmm. All right. Tracking and all of that that I said. You stay in a bush. You learn how to set up camp. You you learn how to uh, um, uh, attack foreign camps. And then, when I was on selection in 1993, and I joined the unit in '92, not '93, like you said previous. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Um, when I joined the unit, when I went on Selection 92, we, we had a phase that they called the dark phase. So... 
first, before the dark phase, they would have a operation isolation phase. So in Afrikaans, it's called operasi yansan. And uh, that is after they've withered you down for a couple of weeks without decent water and food. And most of the guys would have lost a lot of water. Then they, they take you to a tree, one guy. They point you to that tree and they tell you, you will not move more than 50 meters from that. They give you a ton of um, mixed vegetables, an egg, I think a liter of water, and two broken matches, small piece of flint. They tell you survive it's in the middle of the winter. So um, the water in your water bottle reaches freezing point. You don't have any shoes on your feet. They take in your shoes, short pants, and short sleeves. Then you have to survive there for two nights. And if you love, if you love the outdoors, that is peace to your soul. You know, if once the fire is going and you put uh, um, logs on and you make, if there's wind and you make a nice shelter, you actually enjoy it. I enjoyed it. And you take your egg, you put it in, you dig a hole, you make your fire. There's some coals, you put your egg in the sand, you, you cover it, um, you. you um, urinate on it, you put coals on it, and then a couple of minutes later it boils. You don't want to use the drinking water. And then you've got some water and you've got some uh, vegetables. And then uh, two days later, uh, they'll, they'll, two nights later, two days later, they'll come fetch you. They'll blindfold you, they cough you. And then your dark face starts. Then I'll take you to, uh, they'll, they'll place you inside, um, or they first interrogate you, all the painting, or they place you inside this cage. When they place you inside this cage, it's a small hole that goes in, it's a thorn cage. You've just got a small enough space to cramp up on like this. Um, and then they bring Ascaris out. Ascaris is uh, um, old European soldiers from, from Africa and so, and they speak in their mother tongue. Then they will they'll obviously take you out of the cage, they will cuff you to a tree, and then they will interrogate you. You know, then you don't know is this a real thing or not. You know? <laughs> I mean, you look at the pictures in my book, you see how dirty I am. I mean, I, I use my own pictures, and luckily Jim Hooper took them. Otherwise, you know, that piece of history, I want to call it as such, would have been lost forever. Yeah. I can give permission that my own pictures may be placed on the, in the book. And the, the, the pictures are of a, a bloke handcuffed to a tree and, and they're pouring boiling water on him, which I was like, oh my God, like this, is, yes. this is serious. Yes. Some of the guys still have scars still today because the water was a little bit too hot, so they poured on them. <laughs> Oh. And uh, I mean, you can see in those four pictures that displayed of me, you can see the pain <laughs> I'm experiencing. Um, and then that lasts for, for uh, two nights. You're two nights in the cages. Mm -hmm. We escaped, obviously. Me, me and uh, four other guys escaped. And uh, after the cages, but the guys can read all about my escape, our escape in my book. It's, it's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty epic. <laughs> No, thank you. 
Then you have, um, after that, you've got escape and evasion. Then I let you free. They give your boots back. Um, I think they give you some water. I was not there to partake in the exercise because I was still, I was still, um, uh, I was still, I was still in the bush, you know, on my own. And uh, then you have to get back to the camp. And then some of the best trackers and our scurries, they try and catch you. And if they catch you, you know, they put you back in a cages or they interrogate you further. And that usually concluded the end of survival phase. And then after, after, after that, you will, there would be one more thing. You'll go to the Kalahari. That's usually, usually the last one. You'll go to the Kalahari and then you'll have a 150 kilometers route march. Usually I have to carry your own water. You can work in a group there. So if one guy falls behind a little bit, you can encourage him to finish. We, on my selection, we only did 100 kilometers. I think it's because the other selections did 150. I think it's because they withered us down a little bit too much on dark phase and survival phase. And so that's um, a 100 kilometer trek through the desert um, for, and again, this is a, a police unit. And police units usually don't do this type of training and this type of selection. So maybe it would be helpful to, um, because I think you've already mentioned it, this unit does hostage rescues, but also many other things. I mean, you did re uh, reconnaissance missions and things like that. Maybe you want to explain what the task force's mission is so that people can understand why you did all this type of training. Yes, um, the, the task force mission is, is vast. It, it's also, um, I mean, we've got a reconnaissance unit that, that's um, uh, connected to the Army, you know, South African National Defense Force. They do um, urban rural warfare. They do reconnaissance missions. And the task force also did the same. I don't think we're also that well funded as they were. And they were much better funded, I believe, than we were. But there were many missions that we were sent out to go and um, do recce on people that smuggled with weapons and had illegal weapons. If you, for instance, look in my book, the last picture I put in is a picture of uh, four guys there. That story I did not tell. And I, um, we went out in Baba Nanga in, uh, in, in a Durban, in the KwaZulu-Natal mountains. And they told us you'll be there for one night you must um, recce the illegal uh, weapon smugglers, the, the guys, and then um, pinpoint them and then radio it through. We spent three nights there. Uh, we didn't have enough food, not enough water, but we spent three nights there. Um, that is still a story to be told. And uh, yes, that, that picture. One of those guys are me. You can guess which one. <laughs> I, I honestly can't tell with all the camo. Is, is this uh, is this you on the far right? No, it's not me. No, <laughs> oh, damn it, Dave. You have a guess? No, uh, <laughs> no. That's one of the um, um, investigation officers that luckily took this photo. Otherwise, this would have also been lost. 
to the left is Grief, the tall guy. Then mm -hmm. next to him is Bat. He was a parabat as well. Then it's me. Then it's Henry. Henry, uh, I'm not sure where he is now, but he's, uh, I think he's maybe in the States now, somewhere in the States. But this was, uh, is there anything you can tell us about this operation, Shane, about uh, the reconnaissance you guys did that night? Yes. Um, the guy that sent us out, warrant officer Ted Lakira, we didn't know the terrain. He told us there's lots of cover there. He said, okay. <laughs> we had to walk in the night. You see, on my rifle and on Henry's rifle, we've got an mm -hmm. F8 light. Mm -hmm. So if you put night vision on and you shine that, the enemy can't see it, but it's like a torch for you there. So we walked through this shanky town. Um, if I must guess now, I would guess it was four kilometers or five kilometers to our area that we had to set up camp on a hill. When we got there, the, the information wasn't fully fully uh, correct that we received, so the cover was very little. So we had to make sure that we camoed ourselves well so that the enemy couldn't see us. Or, you know, not the enemy, but the illegal legal firearms traders. Yeah. And uh, then from there, we radioed through. Listen, they here come you know, send the choppers that we can arrest them. And uh, yeah, three nights later, four, the fourth day, then we trekked out of there. We had to walk out again as not to be noticed. You will see on my left hand sh shoulder, you'll see the butt sticking out of a M79 40 millimeter grenade launcher. I always took that with this the situation was a little bit rough. And so the bad guys never knew you were there? Never. Sounds like a good I, mission. No, it's, it's a good one to tell. Yeah. But should I tell that story, I need to get hold of at least two of those guys because I don't tell a story just out of my own mouth. Sure, I need sure. to put flavor to it. So I need the, what they felt, what they saw. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe, so after you finish uh, the Kalahari Desert March, you become, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a probationary uh, member of the unit. And now you have opportunities for all these advanced training uh, to learn, you know, skydiving, scuba diving, uh, sniper school, rock climbing, demolitions, medic, tracker school. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the advanced courses that were offered to you uh, after graduation. The thing, skydiving actually is part of uh, the selection course. It's, it's, oh, okay. usually, it's usually the last course you do. So when you finish with the Kalahari walk, you'll get a couple of days rest and you'll go do your skydiving course. Um, again, with us on my selection, they did it. They first did our skydiving and then they took us to uh, for the survival phase. So there was a little bit of a mess up. However, the correct way is you do your skydiving last because that is a cherry on the cake, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For some people, some people hate it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
three weeks, uh, if I'm not mistaken, at Nailstrom, South Africa in Northern Transvaal. Then, um, yeah, they start with, you know, ordinary static lines. You do eight static lines. And then from that, they start you on uh, hop and pop. So they first start you with a dummy rip cord, and then hop and pop, you jump out and you pull your, your rip cord. It's got first a spring-loaded um, uh, pilot shoe that jumps out, and then it, you go from there like a normal thing. And you do about about 40 jumps on your jump school. They also, you also get taught to jump with kit. So you take about 40 kits between your legs, get taught to jump, tactical parachute jumping. Uh, free fall, you jump with your rifle, um, and you do night jumps, you do water jumps. Um, yeah, when you're finished with that after three weeks, you go to the unit, and then they call you a nyotar. So you join the unit, so now you can start partaking in operations. Uh, they call you a nyota. If you come on, it's N-T-J-O-T-T-E-R. They call you a nyota if you just come on a unit. So uh, you're an inexperienced operator. Not Wait, what is it? Does it, it means, does it member. mean young, young dog or something like that? The young dog is, is still coming. The, the nyotar okay. is before the young dog. Oh, really? Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you still now get, you've got a Wara Wara group, you've got a, um, some WhatsApp group. You still get, you know, some of the guys, if he's angry at you and he was a senior guy, he'll tell you, hey, you nyotar, you know, and then he'll use the F word. He's <laughs> as if he's looking down at you, but... No, you, uh, we're not in a unit anymore. Anyway, um, when you're on the unit, the next two courses they try and get you on, all the guys, is scuba diving. It's a commercial, it's a rescue diver. We dive to 50 meters. You dive up to 50 meters. Um, air diving for bottom time should not exceed 20 minutes. Uh, and then... The other course is explosives, where they call you inspector of explosives. So you, you you learn quite a lot. You have to study, otherwise you flunk that course. Yeah. Um, you, you know what what PETN, for instance, stands for. I can still remember it. Peta erythritol tetranitra. TNT, trinitrotoli. I can still remember some of the stuff. Um, and then when you pass the academic version, the exams, they take you to the field. And like I write in my book, that your instructor usually is half deaf, you know, because of all the explosions, but he reeks of experience with explosives. It's out of this world. And then you learn how to uh, mainly how to deactivate explosives as well, because that is your main goal. You know, you, it's not really to set booby traps. You have to learn of booby traps to be able to de deactivate them. You learn how to, what I can remember is a platter, how to put the platter, so you put a shape charge to go through, through a much thicker piece of um, metal or whatever, whatever yeah. the circumstances. Um, 
That is your main causes. After that, you expect it. Now, some guys are gonna um, argue with me there, but you know, this, this, um, <laughs> that is their, that is their uh, prerogative. You expect it to do at least two other courses to specialize in them. All right, for instance, medical course. You do with seven medical battalion, it's more or less a level six medic intermediate life support, although you carry much more serious drugs. Um, rock climbing and the rescue course. Uh, four by four driving, high speed driving, uh, snipers. Um, uh, there are countless, countless courses. You can go further with your diving. You can become a diving supervisor. We do class four diving. You can do class three, class two, up to class two supervisor. Uh, um, tracker, especially uh, an, an extremely good course for the guys to do. A lot of guys did this tracking. You go to Uppingham Dam, Uppingham Dam, something like that, the farmer's called. I never did tracking. You do basic tracking. So it's a tough course. It's a tough yeah. course. And then you do advanced tracking. All the task force guys that went for that course, they passed it. And that is how we're obviously able to track down with the, 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 um, the Ascaris, the Wambu trackers as well. They also, we also work closely with them. That's how we're able to uh, track a lot of, a lot of the. You, you also mentioned in the book, and um, Shane, please forgive me for butchering your, your native language. Uh, there is an exchange between the special task force and uh, I believe it's called uh, Kufut, the tracking unit. Yes. Yeah, Kufut. Um, that's also where the task force gained a lot of experience for uh, bush warfare, you know. That was Kufut started in 79. And operators from the task force were sent from 80 to 83. General Vandraff stopped it in 83 because the guys loved the action so much they left, you know, they left it. <laughs> um, and they gained lots of experience there. And then some of the guys were sent back again closer to the end when I stopped Kufut. Kufut, the little bit, the chapter I wrote about Kufut, I kept it respectfully small. Mm -hmm. I was never served in a unit. I just wanted to um, portray what the guys did as part of the experience that was brought back to the unit. And anyway, um, Jim, Jim Hooper uh, wrote a whole book about Kufut and there was other guys as well. Uh, Zugu, Zugu Foxtrot, I think is one of the books about, about the unit. Yeah, I've, I actually have that book. I haven't read it yet. I read it a few years ago. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I, I can't judge the veracity the way that you guys can. You're obviously much closer to it. Um, well, you mentioned Kufut, like doing your training there. All these other specialties, all these other training courses, were most of these done by by military units? Were they were some of them done in house? Did you go to civilian uh, instructors? Like that's a lot of different specialties. Yeah. Where did they all come from, or how did you guys you know train? At the, at the beginning, lots of them, lots of them came from private. Um, like a private uh, martial arts uh, person. 
-hmm. like a private skydive instructor. Um, in my time, for instance, we dealt with martial arts training, self-defense, martial law self-defense, actually I want to call it, with Robert Redenbach. He was sent to, sent to us and we did, you call it contact training, but you don't spell it with a C, you spell it with a K. I write about him in my book, he's extremely good what he does, extremely. So that's one of the private courses we've done. Um, also, when it comes in my time, it comes to rock climbing and rescue. I was the guy that took the rock climbing and the rescue course. I took it more based on the rescue course. The guy that taught me was extremely well, Colonel Saki from the range. He was extremely good, extremely good in what he did. I and myself and my fellow um, selection, 13 guys, I want to say, we got a guy from uh, Cape Town that was extremely good in rescue techniques. And uh, we did some courses with him, and then we transformed the rock climbing more into a rock climbing and rescue course. Uh, I can remember, I mean, I write in a book where I saved, uh, we saved as a team, but I mean, I was obviously the main brain with my medical experience, Johnny Brassbuckle from Skullbank, <laughs> he fell off the cliff about the 18 meter fall. And uh, if, if we didn't intervene, he would have died. It's, uh, it's good memories. It, it sounded like rock climbing was something you really enjoyed though. Yes, I was, you know, a little bit lighter than now, you know, but I'm stronger now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was something I really enjoyed. You know, it was, it's adrenaline. It's like, um, it, it's, I think you can get addicted to the adrenaline, that's for sure. Yeah. Like, all right, I say it's, it must be something like, I don't know what drug does to your body. I don't believe in it, but it must be maybe worse than that. Yeah. What was your relationship with like the military since you were a police force um, and, and I assume you fell underneath a different chain of command. Is that correct? Um, I mean, did you have a good relationship with, with these different military units that you trained with and that were trained by you? Was there like this sort of interbranch rivalry going on? Uh, the military using... Um... Uh, units that we've trained, been trained by, for instance, seven medical battalions. We had a great relationship with them. Um, you know, we were trained as ops medics because if we go out and then we could carry the stuff with our bags and we had to know how, how to save our own as well as the enemy if needed mm -hmm. or the criminal in our circumstances. Um, but a lot of the time we would take a seven medical battalion medic with us. Okay. And for instance, if we, if we did skydiving, he would bring the ambulance with. So we take care of all the medical needs. And that was the most perfect opportunity for me and other medics to stock our bags, you know, for the times <laughs> that we didn't have their support. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm still friends with some of them. I still, still have very good friends up to this day. Um, yeah, for sure. 
later years, there were some of our guys that went to America as well that trained there. Um, by then, I was already on my way out, out of the unit. Um, they went to top-class American counterinsurgency and hostage release units. Uh, although sometimes some of them would come back and I would question what they, what they were trying to teach us, you know. If a guy tells me, you know, you shoot the guy two in the chest and one in the head, then I will question his motive, you know. We must shoot the hostage taker. One round, maybe two, and it must count. You, know, you must, what is available, you have to focus on and shoot. Um, so, I cannot elaborate on that. Some of the next techniques that was, was brought over from, let's say, the U.S., was good, and I believe some of it was not that uh -huh. not good, not that good. Now, when you say you would replenish your bags from, I think, Seventh Medical, was that with their help or behind their back? No. Um, <laughs> should I protect them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they helped us. You know, we were uh, we were like part of their unit as well. No, no, they, they, they always helped us, especially if you had, you know, you went to their canteen on Friday, Fridays and you, you know, you, you had a relationship with them. And I mean, in my book, I, I speak about some of the small operations I did in the barracks, you know, just to, I, I explicitly wrote that just to make a book a little bit fun, you know, a little bit more fun. And some of the, operations that some of those medics told me about was unreal. It, it, it was unreal, you know. Um, yeah. Now, what about with like units like the recce unit and the more elite uh, military units? Did you have a good relationship with them also? Or did they, did anybody in the military think that they should be doing the job that you guys were doing and and was there a rivalry at all? No rivalry. There was lots of cross training. Okay. Um, we've got lots of respect for each other. They they know we do the hostage rescue. We basically specialize in that. They specialize more in the bush. They've got the backing. They've got um, much more expensive equipment than a task force had. But we could work together as one unit, which we did a couple of times. Uh, we, we still have friends, all of us, lots, lots of us still have friends in the, in the Rekis. Uh -huh. um, and I write respectfully in my book. I'd also, I'd also to elaborate in my book. That's why I've got the one chapter about what is the special forces operator. I, I wanted to, I mean, it is my, it is from my point of view. So I wrote it because I don't say I'm going to get any uh, lip from the reconnaissance unit, which I believe I won't, but there might be somebody else that's going to tell me, Shane, how can a special forces unit reside inside the police? That's why as well I covered all, try to cover all the angles inside a book Normal wording is 90,000 um, words, and mine is about 87, 88. So I, I could have I could have put in uh, loads more of information, but 
there was uh, in chapter. the 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 Rekis did some incredible operations externally. Uh, that, that that's going to be a whole other episode, I think. Um, but there was one interesting episode you write about in your book. Um, and again, please forgive me for mispronouncing this. There was in 1988 there was a attempted coup in Bafatatswana. Bafatatswana. Okay, maybe I'm in the ballpark. Yes. And and you, you write you you wrote you wrote in the book about how uh, the the Ministry of Defense asks the the Rekis, how long will it take you to mobilize? And oh, they're yeah. like, oh, it's going to take us a couple days. And then they look at the special task force. When can you guys get on the ground? And they're like, within the hour. Two hours, yeah. The the reason apparently. Most probably why the Rekis couldn't mobilize within the same day was they were busy with fighting another war. Yeah, they're in the fight. Right. The, the task force is the, on the operator's badge. On our operator's badge, you've got a peregrine falcon because that is for the quickness that we can strike. Peregrine falcon is the fastest animal in, on, um, in, of the animal kingdom. It's the fastest animal. It speeds up to 200 miles per hour, 322 kilometers per hour, faster speed recorded, 389 kilometers per hour. Um, so then General Vandrach, I think it was, he said, within two hours, my men, he called us, can uh, mobilize. And then we reach Swartkop Air Force Base in less than two hours. And could you tell us a little bit about what that coup attempt was, why it happened, and how the task force responded to it? That was, to refresh my memory, that was for, with the Pope. No, no, that was with, uh, with the, you know, the President Mangope, I believe his name was, captive, and the head of the Bopetatswana military. And there was two pilots, correct. So then we, um, we took off with three helicopters. The first two helicopters had 10 task force members in each. The third helicopter had nine in. Third helicopter had mainly in the snipers and the heavy weaponry. And then um, the first two went to Zierest where they uh, regrouped and the third one went back to the office to get more explosive. Um, the officer in charge was Warlord Leroux, and I'm pretty sure he wanted to have enough explosives. <laughs> he was the explosive expert. And then from there, they went, the two choppers went from Zeros. They actually, they almost crashed when they took off from Zeros because of the day of, um, it was the heat of the day, and because of the weight of the choppers. They left for the stadium in Boputatswana and the only information they had was that there was a 
the rebel army was a company strong. So they fought about three or four hundred. When the third chopper reached Zeres, they couldn't establish comms with uh, the first two choppers. So the third chopper was the nine people with the snipers, which I definitely needed with the heavy, heavy weaponry. They, they um, basically, they waited at zero. So it was 20 task force soldiers that were up against more or less 400. Bob soldiers trained by the South African military, heavily armed. And uh, when they landed at the stadium, they first circled the stadium and they wanted to determine where the president was, Mongope, I believe his name was. And then um, they saw a pair of long johns hanging out the window with a red cross on it. it when they found it, it was mercurial painted on the long, long johns. But anyway, then they were dropped there. The choppers had to go back because they didn't have any fuel. They stormed, the 20 guys stormed the stadium and uh, they managed obviously to free the general and they freed the president. The general, I think, was shot in the ankles and the president was uh, covered in the old South African flag. He was beaten right through the night. One guy was specifically to be noted is one of the guys with the name of Boris. He got separated from his friend, from his buddy, Watson, through all the confusion. He ended up in the center of the stadium. And he came upon a rattle full of Bob soldiers, heavily armed. The weaponry was one up. And he shouted, he had a loud voice. He shouted at them. If you don't drop your weapons, I will kill you all. <laughs> and they all dropped their weapons. <laughs> I think the only shot that was fired was one AD somewhere, but no shots were fired. They and like the, 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 whole, the whole mission was like, what, like seven or eight minutes, I think you said? Yeah, a couple of After, couple after of they minutes. hit the ground? Yes. If, if I can remember correctly, seven or eight minutes now. It's, uh, it's, again, it's just not the typical type of police operation that you expect. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's why the task force is a paramilitary organization. Mm -hmm. um, that's why as well, some of the guys left for the army. Yeah. They didn't want to be under the country's law, I believe. They wanted to experience something else. Yeah. What, what, how was your chain? It's very interesting that you were a police force and yet you did these external operations. What was the chain of command like for you? Was it under, I, I don't know if you have like a department of, I mean, I'm sure you have whatever. Ministry of Defense. defense yeah. or, or, or not Ministry of Defense, but Ministry of Justice, right? Or do, yeah. did, did the police and uh, the military share a common chain of command or how did that work for you? Like who would assign you your missions and then how would you get your assets, like your air assets? Um, would the military just pony up whenever the, the police said, we want you guys to do this? 
Um, we had close ties with the military. So our commander-in-chief, if we needed a C-130 or military choppers, then probably not the commander, but from head office. Uh -huh. At first, we used to fall on the, the security branch. Then the command was given over to, she's now, public order policing. And then, you know, the general, like General Vandrach. So, for instance, our commander at Pretoria, if he needed military helicopters, he will call General Vandrach. Or you will call General Blackjack, and General Blackjack will make contact with the military counterparts. And they will have military choppers for us. They'll pick us up where the unit was. There was a rugby field, and they'll pick us up right there at the rugby field. Or we'll yeah. drive with our vehicles to Swartkorps Air Force Base, which was close, and then we'll just drive into the C-130. For instance, three ASCII buses, and then we've got all our equipment. And would all of your orders, like your operations and missions, would they come all? Would they all come from the Ministry of Justice side, or could the military task you with operations? They so has to go through Ministry of Justice, obviously. It's interesting. He, he has to. Uh, uh, obviously, we we fall we fall on, under the country's law, so we still have to. If we do operations, we have to still do it as a police officer. But it means the the normal policing has failed. The normal policing has failed, so they will give you the go ahead for the sniper to pull the trigger. So they'll give you a go ahead to end somebody's life. Right. Or if you can, you will just maim the person so that his life can still be um, saved. But with hostage rescue, there's not really some, a thing like that. You have to, with somebody with a loaded weapon, you have to incapacitate him immediately when you get the, the go there, there were some really interesting missions you detail in the book, Shane, uh, where this, the task force went in actually unarmed. And a few other cases where they were armed and, you know, some operators put themselves at great risk to, um, you know, physically take down the hostage taker without firing a shot, which I thought was maybe the most impressive. That was, that was Boxburg prison. Yes. Um, I believe that operation was Boxburg prison where they didn't allow us to take in weaponry. You know, it's actually not the, the correct, correct way to do it because uh, if somebody approaches you with a knife, you know, he can kill you quickly. Yeah. Um, but on that mission, I was not, but the guy said it was lots of fun. They, they, they said they, they absolutely used their hand to hand skills to be able to rescue the hostages. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't now remember a lot about that. Yes, what happened there is, Warrant Officer Derek Darkson, he got the idea to take a key to the hostages, which Pora 
Porter, the talkie, he took the key and then he told them to lock him to lock himself inside the cell. And he gave them a tonfa. So if somebody comes close to the cell with the key, they must. And you don't open it until you see the guys in camera. So then the guys fought their way through to the cell until they got to the wardens and then they freed them. That's, so that is, yeah, that's what I remember of that operation. Just throwing fisticuffs all the way to the hostage. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, my one of my best friends, he said, this is, you missed out on the great job yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think, you know, a, a lot of people um, know about your unit from the uh, the documentary. I think it was a British documentary that, that is on YouTube today. And uh, just watching it, and certainly from reading your book, again, people should check it out, uh, the South African Police Special Task Force by our guest Shane Willard. Yeah, um, can you hold that up? Can you hold yeah, that up? It, it's just how... Um, how unconventional and the unconventional methods that the task force often used. Um, and perhaps it's because you just had some very smart people in the unit. Perhaps it was also because you didn't have the most expensive high-tech gear to use. You really had to engage you know, your brains and think outside the box to resolve some of these situations. Um, and that really comes through in the book and, and also that documentary. I think it's uh, just really amazing to, to as, even as a case study um, for in special operations missions. No. That, that was from Jeff Chargan. Jeff Chargan, he was from a UK television program. I'm not correct if it was BBC, I'm not sure, but he took some documentaries. It is also on, um, um, if you go on YouTube, you can find it, but if you go on, I have a website. If you look at the back, uh, it's my website, but it is our website as well. If you look at the back of the book, you will see in the last page, the website will be there, where you can see also a lot. We can also see, a, if you go on www.sapstf.org. Mm -hmm. I'll post a link to it down in the, in the description. Hey, yeah. Jack, then, you want to put it in the chat right now? Just so yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, then you can, all the videos, or well, most of the videos are there in the video section. So if you're interested in that, then you can follow that. Also to note, um, this book, unfortunately, my goal was to have it on Amazon.com um, by tonight, but there was a little bit of delay, which is which is understandable. The people that's uh, going to be interested to, book the, to uh, buy the book, the cover would change. Okay. It would look a little bit different because um, my design looks a little bit different. Um, I'm old school. So this is, <laughs> people go to my, my original design. And yes, Jeff is a great guy. He did, he did extremely good videos, um, video footage. And uh, you'll see my name on the skydive video when it's finished. I took ah, the skydive okay. photography. You'll see my name is there at the bottom. Photographer, skydive photographer, Shane Wola. There is a, there's an operation that they capture in that documentary that you describe in your book, maybe you could give us a little background on, where uh, they're going out, the, the task force is going after a transit heist gang in 1998 in Madrana, and they get into a huge shootout. And the, the, the pickup truck comes flying at the task force members, like goes over a bump and the Molotov cocktails explode. It's like something like straight out of a Hollywood movie. It, it, it isn't it, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jeff was lucky to get that shot as well. Eh? He was lucky. But he pushed a lot for good footage. Um, yeah, that begins with he was photographing, uh, videographing Ashley Crooks, warrant officer Ashley Crooks. Uh, Ashley likes if I speak about him, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's uh, a good guy, Ashley. So Ashley recited a, psalm, uh, um, a verse out of a psalm, you know, Lord is my strength and so on. It's actually good to watch. And then uh, he said, you know, everybody wore orange coveralls or brown coveralls to obviously cover the cameras. And then the information was accurate somewhere in Johannesburg. And uh, as the truck with the CIT caching transit, um, you, you know, guys came rushing toward the one task force guy that stood in the road. You know, he shot at it. And the driver lost control of the vehicle. They drove into, into the bushes and the Molotov cocktail that was in the truck of the three or four cash and transit guys, it exploded and, you know, the vehicle burst into flames. Um, and they, you know, there was some more of the guys were shot and one or two was arrested. But uh, it's a good video. The video says, says it better, you know, than I write in the book. I was wondering if we could talk then a little bit about some of the operations you had participated in, Shane. Um, there's this really uh, interesting one you describe in your book, Operation Shoba Shonabin, 1996. Shoba Shobani. Shoba Shobani. Shoba Shobani. Yeah, that was a good operation. You know, we went in, um, there were a couple of guys that participated in that. Uh, myself, Loki Oren, uh, Stocky's Haystack, he's passed away, captain in operation, God rest his soul. Uh, um, and another guy, I can't remember his name. We and looked after. Loki is they, quite prominent in your book, also. He sounds like a Loki, he sounds like he's a pretty badass guy. Yeah, yeah, the, the guys, the, some guys that if I speak about them, they know, they'll know he is, but I won't elaborate on who he is. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> he was with me on selection. We did many operations together. So it's, it's also, uh, yeah, it's interesting, you know, to, to play something like that in your book. And then when we went to this district in, you know, KwaZulu Natal in a mountainous hills, it was a massacre, people that, that murdered lots of other um, innocent people. He's um, in Golweni massacres, if I remember the name correct. And Bushy Engelbrecht, um, Woodley, I think, two other investigating officers. Um, and then obviously the informants we protected. And then later on, we were given a reporter as well, lady reporter. And with the lady reporter, they sent their own bodyguard with, you know, Lapis, the tall guy. She has to have her own bodyguard because we're focusing on the job. We also had the seven medical guy because he would obviously patch up anybody and he, uh, he frees us. Me, myself and Loki were uh, trained as medics, but we, we didn't need to focus on that. So each night, certain time will go where the informant shows us and it's in this mountainous area you know it's a one foot path and he'll lead us to go where we should go 
we will knock on the doors, we will we'll, um, arrest somebody if needed, we'll first clean the area and then the um, investigation officers can go in. So this one specific morning, um, Loki specifically, I can still remember, he told Stocky, Captain Stocky's hashtag, he said, Captain, it's becoming early in the morning, the sun's gonna come up, they're taking the time the investigation office. You have to get out of here. You have to, I can still remember that, you know? And, uh, okay, Stocky's pushed them, and then we left later than we should. So as we were leaving, the sun was starting to rise, and you should be out by, by the sun shouldn't be up, it should be dark stop. And then we jumped into our Nala, and they jumped into the ordinary vehicles, and we were supposed to be in front, and they were in front. We went up this hill, and as I looked out the window, I could see the ladies of the tribe. They came out of the hills. And I thought, what are they doing now, you know? And then, then all of a sudden, on the top of the hill, we stood still. We couldn't go to the left or the right. It was too steep. And there were some gunshots at the front. So then Captain Stokis Haystack told us, skirmish to the front. So now we had Lapis. We gave Lapis, that was the bodyguard of the lady reporter. He was the driver of the Nala. So he frees us, the four-man team, he frees us up. So we can do the protection. He's driving. The medic is safe. The reporter is safe. Okay. Okay, we get out of the Nala, we skirmish up. Now, I mean, the the listeners know what skirmish is, correct? Like an, One, like an assault okay. line. Yeah. Yeah, like the assault line. So we, we skirmish forward um, to go, and at the top, there was a, a, a roadblock. So they put in, they put stones and stuff in front of the, um, on the top of the hill, and then the men started approaching from the front. And the women of the tribe, started approaching from the rear. And as I was skirmishing up, I saw Loki to the right. He had the MP5 in his uh, right hand, I think, and I think the M79 40mm rocket launcher called the Martini Henry nickname, it's not near in his left hand. And I thought, what is he going to shoot with that, you know? <laughs> and I just chuckled for a while. <laughs> and then behind him, I saw Lapis, the bodyguard of the reporter, running with his MP5. And I look at him, I tell him, you're going nowhere. I say, get back in, get back in the yard. He tells me, no, he tells me, no, he's not going back. And, and, but now at this, at this point, I mean, the, just to be clear, I mean, these are Zugu warriors that are coming down and surrounding the task force members and also this reporter and medic that are, are along with you. Legendary Zulu warriors, they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So now I look I look back at the Nyala. The Nyala doors are still open. So mm -hmm. it's got two doors that opens up um, uh, with pressure, and then it, it pushes one button, it closes with pressure. So Lapis gave his side arm to the medic. Medic is unarmed because it's not a military operation. And he gave him quick instructions, you know. I don't know how much of the information the medic got, but not enough. <laughs> so the Zulu women, they started approaching the Nala. They started moving towards the reporter and the medic. And I wanted to join the skirmish, 
And I thought, Lapis is not hearing me. He's drawn like a moth to a flame. <laughs> I need to protect, I need to protect the lady reporter. Okay, and what I did is they believe in Tangomas and we doctors. So my R1 rifle is loaded with uh, um, tracer rounds. Mm -hmm. So I aimed nicely and I shot one round right in the center of them. So when a pyrotechnics came out of where the round landed, they thought, you know, I made a fire. They didn't know what it was. It was something new. I had to think on my feet. I had to think quickly. I shouted that medic to close the doors. The women screeched, they ran everywhere. And I knew I could join the skirmish line. Cause I knew, and as I looked back, he got the right button to push for the nala for the doors to close. Okay, joined in a skirmish line. We calmed the situation at the front, we cleared the road, and then we skirmished back to the nala again. We entered the nala. Nobody was hurt. The lady reporter said, you got the two rows of seats, you got a, you got a driver and a commander, the two rows of seats for the, um, the soldiers or the policemen and then the one at the back. And there where your feet are, there's a small space. She was sitting inside there, she was holding herself. She was inside that small space. That is how she, afraid she was. Eh? Yeah. I looked her straight in the eyes. And yeah, so... Uh, we exchanged some non-verbal communication and uh, then yeah, we went back to the base. What, what was the, was there, what was the reason for the, the Zulu tribe to surround you at that point? Was it just because you were outsiders in their area or was it because of the nature of your operations at the time? Absolutely. We're in the area. We shouldn't be there as well yeah. as, you know, they may have a valid reason why, why that massacre happened. If I remember the, it corrected, easing Colweni massacre, they might have a valid reason in their tribe, but lawfully it's not valid. And we were in their district, you know, they don't want us there. Right. Was that often a problem for you and other police force where you're dealing with like you say, for them, in, in tribal-related matters or, or the way they operate as tribes, it's a, it's a valid, it, it's valid and legal for them in, in their minds, but it is not legal according to, like, South African law. Or absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you, Zulu warriors, the well-known warriors in the history way back. Um, I mean, it's, it's age-old tradition. Um, um, and you know, South Africa, you get the Zulus and the courses. We've got 11 different languages, so you get many different nations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we've got mutual respect for each other as well, if I just can throw it out there quick. So, yeah. You we, just, if, yeah, if you're we, a cop you, and they, they tell you, you go arrest this person, you do it. It doesn't matter which government, the government of the day, we did what we were asked to do. Right. Yeah, we saw a lot of similar stuff in Afghanistan and whatnot with the, because the tribes are, are so old there, like the Pashtuns and whatnot. They have their own moral code. They have their own ethics code that, you know, yes. supersedes anything that the government is going to tell them is right or wrong. So um, we have some questions real quick that I don't want to go too long without getting to, if you don't mind, uh, Shane. Sure. Um, Alex, thank you very much. Um, 
having served in such an elite uh, law enforcement unit, what lessons reforms can US law enforcement undertake to improve and become a more effective entity? Uh, see below. Uh, you didn't type anything else. But uh, what are there ways that whether it was you or the regular police force uh, in South Africa learned to deal with people that you think that the US is lacking? Or do you have any criticisms of of how policing is done in the U.S. from what you've seen lately? Well, the, the, the U.S. police, in my, what I've seen and experienced, they're very professional and the, the public's got a lot of respect for them. I mean, I was in the U.S. in 94 for three months, 97 for six months, and uh, the policemen I met were very nice. Um, It is, it is quite a complex question with what happened in the world uh, currently. Understanding of, I'm a medic, I'm a trained medic, understanding the human body better, you will know how long that person can survive without oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. I'm sure in South Africa, you guys ran up against that a lot too, in the sense of there are laws that are in place uh, that, that you're required to enforce. And, uh, um, and well, I mean, I'm not talking about Chauvin uh, because I think that everybody agrees that what he did was, was but, but just in general policing, um, there are laws that are in place that you guys have to enforce, but it's not always the popular thing to enforce them or that the laws themselves sometimes put you at odds with, you know, with the, the population. Um, and, and how, like, were you, were, Absolutely. The, were the South African police uh, trained a lot in like de-escalation and, you know, dealing with people outside of just arresting them? Um, I, be, I believe a certain part of the South African police were trained in that. Um, now what we see in the news, there's a minority of the South African police that uh, would handle a situation in a more stable, professional manner. So he will sum up the psychology of the situation and he will calm it. Uh, because if you approach a person, you can see the person is upset. You know, mm -hmm. you don't want to go in and just finish the guy. You, you, you want to diffuse the situation. You want a warning. This is your right. I know you're upset. That's the best way to approach a person. Um, you get different options. Unfortunately, you get some of them they just rush in. I mean, we've seen now with this COVID-19, um, you, you know, two cops will drag a small lady to put her in the back of the van. You know, is it the right way? Probably not. You know, you, we don't know what she said or done before. Right. We've seen we've seen a um, a, a traffic cop, a transit police officer, which is as it's known in America. We've seen it trying to arrest a small child for walking on the beach and the father has, come, has to come and protect him. So something 
is wrongly in the psycho psychological training of the of the cops. Right. Um, I, I believe so. In South Africa, there, there's also um, there, there, there's also a lack of training for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, JK, thank you very much. Uh, he says, Sheen, are there are any jihadists operating in uh, South uh, South Africa at the moment? Not that I know of. Most no. probably, most probably, they they are undercover, but not to my knowledge. It, do, does South Africa have a predominant uh, religion? When you look at the different tribes and whatnot, do they have their own? sort of religion spiritual traditions or what what does that look like in south africa um the, the tribes a lot of them believe in the same gomas uh so they, a lot of them believe in the forefathers um, a lot of them are christians a lot of them are muslim we've got all the religions in south africa all of vast what you can think of, we have, I, pro I promise you. Um, it, it is re religion or kind of still free, although it's been taken out of schools a little bit, religion. It, it's, it's basically, you're free to um, practice any religion that, that you want to. And, and there, there's how, how many different tribes are there indigenous to South Africa? Official languages is 11 tribes. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. I won't be able. If I say thirty-three, there's probably more than that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then, and then there's also uh, Dutch South African, English South African, Portuguese, and Indians. If I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, Indians, um, um, Chinese, uh, mm -hmm. Europeans, uh, Americans. Um, I mean, my my father came from Europe. My mother came from South Africa. That's why my name is Shane Willard. You know, that's why I've got an English name. They sent me to an Afrikaans school, you know. That's why they sent my, my sister to an English school. So uh, uh, English is much better than mine. They sent me to Afrikaans school. They wanted me to be a boer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, General Crank, thank you very much. Uh, sticky question. Uh, and you don't have to answer, and this is from him. Any opinion on what has been happening to white farmers, et cetera, in South Africa? And do you think it's indicative of a larger growing problem with nas national security implications? First of all, to the white, South, white farmers, South Africans, they should protect themselves better. Um, I know a lot of them, and it is very heartbreaking. If they protect themselves better, they would be able, the farm attacks, they will be able to lessen it. And they would be able to curb it at such a stage that they will not be protected. Oh, that they will be protected, that they will not be, um, that they will not be attacked. For myself, I think our government and other governments can focus more attention on the farm killing because it's not right you know it is every every human being is precious it doesn't matter you know i don't believe in 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 different races you're a good person you're a bad person 
it's good good or it's right or wrong. Yeah. Um, DJ, thank you very much. He's just a damn good episode, guys. And Alex, uh, uh, so you guys can, oh, he gave us a donation. Thank you, Alex. Uh, so we can get some, uh, is it batong? Is there the beef jerky, right? Uh, batong? Batong? Uh, is the the uh, beef jerky in South Africa? It's Bolton. Bolton. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what I send him some. Yeah. <laughs> so. and, and so, Shane, I was, the other operation that you detail in the book that you were a part of was uh, in Albar's prison in 1997. And you got to use some of your abseiling. Uh, rock climbing skills during that operation, if I yeah. remember right. That was a, that was a rough one. Yeah, first of all, what I think it was '97. Um, it was about 40 operators that uh, arrived at uh, St. Albans Prison. This was a second hostage situation. Um, first, the Cape Town branch arrived. Then we from Pretoria arrived. Most of the guys were on other operations because the unit is so small. And when we arrived, everybody was tired. And um, so the first opportunity we got to take a break, we, we rested. Um, there was five hostages, one lady, one, uh, um, I think a doctor or medic, if I remember correctly. And uh, they had the hand grenades, uh, um, a pistol, and because of the lady that was also taken hostage, I believe they approved a quick hostage release. Our first attempt was a little bit fragile and unplanned. So we pulled out of that very discreetly. So as not to have any of our hostages uh, injured. So then what we did is we went to another prison close to St. Albans and we um, made molds for the fast ropes and we had a plan of the um, prison. And for that specific operation, Warrant Officer Lion Willifier, a very strong individual, he took charge of the operation. That was a non-commissioned officer of a successful operation with the officers, the, the sergeants, all of them, all of them worked together. Certain guys stood out a little bit more. And then uh, I was tasked because I was the rock climbing and the rope expert with my team to clamber over. We had a team Alpha, team Bravo, team Charlie. I was team Alpha, me and Eni, his nickname is Drollbutt, we were the rock climbing experts. We fixed our ropes on the roof. We knew where the hostages would be more or less. And then we measured our rope to jump off the roof and then to hang with our weapons in front of the cell and then dominate them. Team Bravo clambered over the roof at another area and they had these um, specially made uh, iron U-form uh, hooks that I placed over certain areas that they can fast climb up and down with the rope. 
I placed uh, Donny Rieder was in charge there. Donny Rieder and Fryer. They placed some explosives on the cell door to make sure we open it very quickly. They placed something a little bit too much. <laughs> Donny told me when the countdown came, the explosive actually fell off, you know? They, you know and then he ran back and it was three, two, <laughs> make sure it's stuck again and then when the explosive blast you know we got it it's found him a bit um that cell door was blown i don't know how many meters 50 meters down down the hallway and uh then we had team charlie that was also a backup they went in at another door but it was basically team alpha us so when the countdown came very discreetly I signaled to my guys, they said they were ready. We jumped. I jumped and the robot was still, he was still busy with his rope. You know, he told me he was ready, but when we jumped, I was the lone guy there. So in front of the window, I shouted. The window was unfortunately covered with a blanket, so I couldn't see in at all. But I made as if I could see him. And I wasn't quite stable because my feet were not against the wall. Um, so I just dominated with my voice. And then the two other guys in my team, they threw Veltis and Chris, they threw stun grenades into the square that we had. So to create this special effect. So we basically bought time for Team Bravo. They blew down the cell door with explosive. They ran down the hall. And then they, they uh, liberated the hostages. Um, that was out of a prison to do a hostage rescue is it's not easy. It, it takes, if I may say, it takes nerves of steel and it takes good leadership and it takes thorough planning. That's because the, the prison is obviously designed to keep people inside. So the, the fortifications and the doors and, and everything, the windows, everything is like super difficult for you guys to get through and breach inside to rescue the hostage. Absolutely. I mean, the windows are about this wide. Um, they block this, this. You can't always enter with the key. They take soap and they put it inside the, the, um, where the key goes. And it mm -hmm. hardens, you can't get your key, you know. Um, they put pieces of glass in the in the floor, in the hallway. So if, if you walk, they will hear you. And then they watch you from all the different areas, the cells. I mean, the prison is in different squares, it's both. So even if the prisoners is not part of the hostage taking, they will still warn with their metal cups and so they'll eat on the on the boss and they will warn the hostage takers of us approaching um yeah and uh, we've done hostage releases out of a couple of prisons uh, success all successfully uh, shane uh this has been awesome um there are like on my notes here, I have like, you know, probably 30 different operations on, from your book that I thought were interesting. Yeah. Obviously, we don't have time to get into all of it. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll ask if you can stick around to do a bonus segment. 
um, and maybe we can talk about a few of the interesting ones. But um, I, I also wanted to ask you about, you know, um, where this where the special task force is today, um, where you're at today. Um, you talk about a lot of operators from the unit going off and doing private security contracting in Iraq. I, I just want to kind of bring things up to speed to where we are now. Um, where the task force are today. Uh, the, the task force today, um, I'm, I'm not in contact with them um, at all anymore. So the task force today, what I can say is they have adapted to their circumstances, to um, the modern day, and they're obviously um, doing their work. I'm not, I'm not quite following them. So they're doing their work professionally, I believe, according to what... Um, is expected of them in this era. What I know is Task Force Durban. We often, every now and then we see some operations they've done. And uh, um, uh, they, that's quite a strong unit, I must say. The, the, the few operations that I've seen where they've uh, arrested some uh, murderers and uh, uh, robbers and stuff, they really took care of them. So I know Task Force Durban, what I see, they do. And for the operators that left the task force, they all over the world. You know, some guys, I don't, I can't say they're still chasing their dream, but they will be still training other units in the world. So they'll train them in whatever um, military fashion or discipline that they get paid for. Um, a lot of the guys, most of them are still in the security field. So they will do, they will look to VIP protection, or they will train guards, or they will do some overseas contracts. Myself is, for myself, I've been looking after people since I left school, basically. So I make sure the people I look after, they don't get taken hostage. And in my 30 years, I've not lost, I can proudly say I've not lost anybody. Um, I also do, myself, I also do other stuff. We, we, uh, I'm in contact with uh, uh, another colleague of mine that's with the Ministry of Interior of Israeli. We blast proof and blast proof anything for you. Uh, buildings the most modern technology Build, buildings double stories um, containers uh, vehicles we're planning to blast proof atms with the best technology that you have sometimes i look after people sometimes i do more clever stuff if you want to say um these guys that one guy got his own uh, weapon shop so he he, he makes weapons He's an armorer. One guy is in, I think he's watching now, Johan. He went into the music industry. He's in America. So <laughs> he chased his dream. He was an operator. And now he's, you know, a badass musician. <laughs> um, and I take my hat off for people like that. You know, they chased their dreams and they made it possible. Yeah. Um, um, absolutely. That's what I can think of quickly. Um, 
Yeah, some guys got their own company. Some guys work for individuals. And a lot, a lot of guys ended up in in Iraq, as you mentioned in the book. Yes. Um, I, I myself worked there for eight years. Uh, a lot of guys, the Iraq contracts have uh, decimated a little bit. I don't know if the guys went back. I know Balat Air Force Base. There was a lot of guys. That was where my last contract was. Um, but, you know, I wanted to move out of that sphere a little bit, so I did health and safety as well. Um, what we did is interesting, quite interesting, way back in 2004, we looked after the tier one principles of Iraq. So we were chosen. Um, I was the first person they basically approached, not the first person, the other people didn't want to accept the contract to look after the tier one principles of Iraq. So the newly appointed by the, by the coalition government. So you would only be two operators at the beginning. So you look after your client and you train his security. So when they approached me, it was um, ex-Navy SEAL guys, Duke, so one guy's named Dennis, the other guy's name, I can't remember. I know his, his uh, email address was goseal at gmail.com, I think. And then he, 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 uh, he, he asked me, listen, he called me into his office and he said, Shane, you know, and explain the contract. I said, yeah, okay, I'll take it. I'll get you the offer. He said, no, no. He said, wait. He said, go, go think about it. See me in the morning. I said, my answer is going to be the same. And then uh, next morning, I saw him again. I got his eight guys. And then we, um, in 2004, in 2004, about 40 or 60 guys, we pulled from the task force to come join our ranks because the job was quite lucrative. And uh, later on, they sent the Navy SEALs over because they saw this was a political-driven agenda and they couldn't afford that any of these tier one principles of Iraq, you know, get taken out. So then we worked with the with the teams, the Navy SEAL teams. Good guys. We we really had some good fun together. And then what was it that uh, set off the idea in your head to to write this book? Um, Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll hold good. it up again for, and you know, if you can tell people where they can find it, you said it might be on Amazon uh, before too much longer. Um, wh when, when did you, this idea occur to you that you wanted to write a book about your previous unit? Okay, it's, it's now currently only available on South Africa warbooks.co.za. It's expensive to send it to the States, but it can be sent anywhere, but Soon it's going to be available on Amazon.com. Okay. After that, I want to translate it into whatever language, if necessary. Then, after that, I'm actually looking to make a movie about it. Cool. Okay. So, so I've already started the advertising. I, I believe it is. It is. Uh, it, it can make a blockbuster. If you want yeah, to call yeah. It so. so, where did I get this idea? When I left the task force, you know, I wanted to be a civilian. So I said, to me, the task force was a lifestyle. 
it wasn't a career, it was a lifestyle. I loved it. I loved everything I did about it. I decided, because of certain reasons, I decided to leave and become a civilian. Right. So then I basically left the task force and I said, okay, I've got my few friends and I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to chase my dreams. And then I was busy actually writing a book about my own experience in Iraq. I would have called it this book, The South Africa. Got some nice pictures. That's how I can remember so much about some of the operations because I've, I've detailed them way back. That's smart. Right. And uh, then one night I visited one of my friends in Pretoria. His name is Carl van der Waal. You know, was a very good instructor in a task force. A lot of guys didn't like him, but he was a very good instructor. His, his nickname, Rambo. <laughs> he actually started my website, the website that I own now. And uh, then he, he gave it to me and I adapted it. Um, and then he... Shane, you must write a book about it. You must, I said, no, you, you created the website. You do it. No, but um, this is my second book, by the way. My first book is titled uh, The Truth About Self-Defense, a guideline for women and teenagers around the world to obtain the best knowledge about self-defense available. So I wrote a book. You have to contribute to society, correct? So I wrote this book to contribute to society. Um, and then he saw, obviously, I've got some experience writing. And then he kept on and on, you know, and after the fifth or sixth double, Red Art and Coke, you know, rum and Coke. Then I told him, okay, give me everything you have and I will start. And then if I make a promise, I keep to it. And then I started drafting a book and many drafts later. Um, I changed it and I changed it again. I sent it to one publisher that almost accepted it. It was thrown out by a chief director. And then I changed it again and I looked for more info. And then I, I taught myself how to get information out of the guys. The guys that gave me their stories is because they trusted me. Yeah. You see some of the stories and I knew I would write, they knew I would write their stories nicely, you know. You see some of the stories are very short. It's a good operation, but the guy didn't want to speak. Mm -hmm. Other stories are very long. The long stories, I had to get four, five, or six guys to speak to, to build the story. And uh, I would ask a guy if he's willing, he say yes. I would prepare him two days. I will tell him the operation. I will remind him again about it. It will build up in his mind. And then a second day, I'll go to him. And then I'll say, he'll tell me his story. And then I'll give him some flashes of what I um, collected already. And then, yes, he will tell me, yes, now I remember, you know. And then he'll come up with more information. This, so that uh, is how I could yeah, detail this, some of it. This, this book, Shane, uh, it, it's not just, you know, Shane's opinion about things. You interviewed like probably 40 uh, other members of the unit that contributed to the book. Absolutely. A absolutely. It is. The, the book is not about it's not about me. It's about right, the special right. task force. I, I had to put a little bit of me in it because I was on some mm -hmm. of the operations, of course. And um, that book is like a CV, like I say to the guys. This is a CV for each guy that was operating in a special task force. 
the guys can see what you've been through, what you've done. Some guys were better than others. Some guys were good snipers, some guys were good trackers, some guys were good in a couple of disciplines. Um, and yeah, let's let let let's take it further. I, I don't want to just leave it there. Um, and uh, you know, the the guys have already asked me for a second book. Um, All the story. That's great. That's great. Is, is this the first book about the task force that's been written? The one, Dave, David. This is the one and only. The one and only. There's no other book about the special classes. Not even in a South African police um, history album. Yeah, history album. There's one or two sentences about the, the South African police special classes. This is the first one that um, uh, that that's got information about the unit. That's great. And, and I hope now that this book is out that, you know, you're able to follow up on it and record more of this history. And, you know, perhaps some of your, your teammates will also um, contribute their accounts as well. And once you get this up on Amazon, sure. will you let us know so that we can put it out there and, yeah, please. and, and plug it? Uh, we'll let, we'll let our, our people know that it's up. Absolutely. I mean, I'm following up with Pete from Warbooks. He, he, he actually, he told me, you know, there were some changes. So, so it, it's a delay. Amazon is obviously very thorough with what they do. So yeah. it, it would be out there a couple of days, I believe. Yeah, fantastic. So guys, one more time. The book is The South African Police Special Task Force, An Operator's Perspective by Shane Wade Willard. Here's the book. Hopefully uh, it'll be available for all of you on Amazon fairly soon. Uh, otherwise, uh, everyone watching, thank you for joining us live. We really appreciate it. Um, we really appreciate Shane joining us because it's like probably three in the morning where he is right now. Um, you know, please, please make sure that you like the video or dislike it. I don't care. Get, tell us something, write some comments down there. Tell us we suck. Tell us we're great. Whatever it is, um, you know, share the video with your friends and there's a link down in the description to our Patreon, uh, if you want to financially support the stream and have access to the bonus segments we do with our guests. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's about it. Coming up next week, our next guest is going to be a friend of mine, Bob Charest. Uh, Bob served on Special Forces Detachment A in Berlin. Um, they had to stay behind urban unconventional warfare mission during the Cold War. So, um, that's going to be a super cool episode. Bob's a very, very interesting guy. Uh, served in Vietnam also. Uh, maybe some other stuff we'll get him to talk about. So I think that's it. You know, thank you, Shane. Thank you, thank Dave. You, Shane. We appreciate it. And uh, thanks, everybody, for supporting us, for watching. Thanks, Shane. My pleasure. And my just finally say to everybody, just a final word. Mm -hmm. We always greet in the task force. We always greet each other. We say, do not... Let the hostage taker play rumble tumble with you all. Do not let the hostage taker Donny Brook you, which means you must always win, no matter what the costs are. And Shane, one final thing. People who served in the task force, the, the operators, they were actually known as what, Takis? Takis, yeah. T-A-K-I-E-S. Takis. Where does that word come from? What does it mean? It is an acronym. It is short for task force. Uh, okay, okay. Like, I should have like asked Rick, that. Yeah, REC is short for reconnaissance regiment. 
Takis is absolutely short for task force member. I should have asked that question at the very beginning, but I'm glad I remembered at the end. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. All right. Thank you, guys. Sure. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.